I gazed at it and held my breath, at the face whose history had been interrupted at just this point, and which would not tell a single thing regarding either the future or the past. Sometimes we see such a face on the stump of a tree that has just been chopped down. Though the cross-section of the tree is young and fresh in color, all growth has ceased at this point. It is open to the wind and the sun, to which it should never have been opened. It is exposed suddenly to a world which was not originally its own, and on this cross-section, drawn with the beautiful grain of the wood, we see a strange face, a face that is held out to this world, just so that it may reject it. This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. Back to the readers, Karamazov. We are your hosts, the bastard sons of Hegel. I'm Carl Bookmarks. I'm Friedrich Pietsche. And I'm Soren Rearguard. Welcome back, listeners. We're glad to have you with us for this episode on Yukio Mishima's The Temple of the Golden Pavilion. We're going to dive into that book in just a minute. But first, uh, as always, a few items of housekeeping. You can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at the readers K. We are on Facebook, facebook.com slash theReadersKaramazov. You can send us an email, theReadersKaramazov at gmail.com. And you can find our podcast on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Podbean, and pretty much any place you can find your podcasts, you'll find us. Please do, especially on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and a review. I've seen a few more beautiful five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts, but we'd love to get a few more reviews as well in there. Those help for sure. And think about recommending us to a friend if you like what you hear here. Or an enemy. Or, an or, enemy. <laughs> or someone you hate. If you, ha- if you have someone in your life that you hate, feel free to recommend our episode two episodes ago where we go through a bunch of terrible foods and eat them. <laughs> but we're back talking about, about this book, The Temple of the Golden Pavilion. As always, I'm going to give you a brief plot summary. I'm then going to throw it over to Carl to tell us a little bit about why he picked this book for our first cycle of the season, building off of The Name of the Rose, this cycle being monks. And um, as I said last time, this is a, a, a very different take on monks than what we've had so far, which I'm very excited about. So I'm going to let Carl talk a little bit about that before we dive into our questions for the episode. So Yukio Mishima's The Temple of the Golden Pavilion coincidentally came out this the very same year as our last book, the Can- Canticle for Leibowitz, 1959. It is, like that book, a book in the wake of World War II and the dropping of the nuclear bombs. So it has, like that book, some, some anxiety and tension around those things, but from a very different perspective since it's written by a Japanese author, told from a Japanese perspective. It is the story of um, a boy named Mizuguchi who is the son of a Buddhist priest, um, his father, however, is very ill and, and dies in his childhood. He is brought up in the shadow of a Buddhist temple called the Golden Temple. He uh, eventually goes there to study and train to himself become a Buddhist priest. But he uh, faces some challenges and some um, strange perceptions of the temple as he goes along. Mizuguchi is a stutterer, and because of that, he's a bit of an outcast. Um, he has a strained relationship with his mother, who he once saw making love with another man in front of his father as his father's sort of lying there dying. Uh, so that's a, that's a strained relationship. He has a strained relationship with the superior of the temple, the man in charge of the temple, who was a friend of his father's but does not live up to Mizuguchi's standards of what a Buddhist monk and priest should be like. He has troubled relationships with a few of his classmates kind of in the temple and then later at the university where he's studying. He meets a, a young friend at the, at the temple Tsurakawa, who's a very sympathetic boy who listens to him, but Tsurakawa has problems of his own, eventually dies. He meets another friend at university, Kashiwagi, who, like Tsurakawa, um, seems to be a sympathetic figure at first. He's um, a club-footed 
young man, so he too has a disability like Mizuguchi does. But um, pretty quickly, it turns out that Kashiwagi is kind of a manipulative guy. Um, and the the book follows Mizuguchi as he grows up from basically from being a young teenager to the time when he's just becoming an adult. He's turned 21. He's on a quest somewhat to lose his virginity any way he can. Um, but he's also, and more primarily, locked in this strange relationship with the Golden Temple itself. He um, sees it first almost as a sort of visionary location of beauty, but as he grows, he finds his relationship with it becoming more fraught. And um, by the end, he's reached the conclusion, the only thing I can do is burn the Golden Temple to the ground. And so the book ends with his attempts to do that. It's a very fascinating book in a lot of ways. We're going to dive into its its historical context a little bit and some of the philosophical things that are going on with it. But first, I want to give Carl a chance just to talk a little bit about why he chose this book for us to discuss, especially um, as we're thinking about monks, what they're like, what they do, and um, what he finds valuable about this and, and what he wants to get out of this conversation today. Thanks, Soren, as always, for that great rundown. It's hard to say exactly why I picked this. I, I mean, I just it fit with the monks theme, and I, I really wanted to discuss it on this podcast, especially just because Mishima is such a, a unique figure. I think his own life is sort of a myth, almost, in how he lived and how he portrayed himself and how he eventually died. And there's also this sort of beautiful film about him, Mishima: Life in Four Chapters, which talks about this book in particular in part of it and also sort of adds to this interesting way in which you can think about him as a, as a figure and as and this work of art as sort of intertwined with his life in some way and also therefore kind of think of him as perhaps like Mizuguchi in some way and then I think just the figure of Mizuguchi is somewhat of like a Jorge and William combined almost in an interesting way and it fit to me with the name of the rose obviously with the sense of you know burning a place down at the end uh, but in a much different context here right in the zen context where because zen and buddhist transcendence often involves this sense of like something unknowable or something completely incomprehensible beyond all understanding um, which could be destruction in a lot of koans and parables that is destruction and like the nonsense kills a cat koan that we get in the book it's destruction so thinking differently about destruction not in the sense of these fragments that are all that we have maybe at the end of name of a rose but this sort of beautiful destruction that is i guess we'll see what y'all make of it but I thought there were a few tie-ins and it was just a great way to think about it. And it, it gives us a slightly different context with, you know, Buddhist monks. Thanks for that, Carl. That's a really good setup for some of the things that I think we're all interested in talking about with regards to this book. Let's go ahead and, and take that idea that you mentioned right at the end there and start with that as, as a place to begin thinking about what this book is doing. You mentioned that, at, you know, at the end, of course, like the name of the rose, very appropriately... It ends with a, a temple, a place of, of a monastery in flames with a dis, the destruction of something that's been built up over the centuries. At one point, Mizuguchi is sort of not noticing actually how strange it is that the Golden Temple has been preserved from fires because there's fires used to be very common in sort of the medieval Buddhist monasteries. And it ends with the destruction of this, this place of learning, this place of the preservation of knowledge. But... As you noted rightly, there's an ambiguity there because I think we're supposed to take at the end of the name of the rose the destruction of the library as an unadulterated tragedy of some sort. There might be a little bit of ambiguity there, but for the most part, we're on the side of William and the others who want to preserve that knowledge. But you're right here that in the Buddhist context, there's some tension and ambiguity because destruction or liberation from the things of the world is not necessarily a negative in fact, you know, some would say that's sort of one of the main points of Buddhism. But but it, there's a strange tension running through the book on that very point. To what extent is destruction cathartic? Is it helpful? Is it good? And in what ways is it maybe still somewhat of a tragedy? So I wonder what you all think about what role destruction might be playing here in terms of a sort of creative 
force in the book. I mean, I do want to caution against the one sort of thing that Buddhists are often kind of forced to defend themselves against, which is that like, it's not nihilism. And I think, you know, Mishima's Buddhism is very close to nihilism. (laughs) In our translation, it's nihility. And I think that sort of takeoff from Buddhism is really interesting, but it's certainly in most Buddhist traditions, right? This sense of emptiness or transcendent nirvana or like the blowing out or extinguishing of something that is, you know, the material world or the maya of all desiring and sensation, which is just suffering. That's always sort of directly linked to like this overwhelming compassion or benevolence. And for Mishima, that link is not necessarily right there. And so I think just making that distinction is pretty important. This isn't, you know, Buddhist orthodoxy of any kind. It doesn't seem like to me. But I'm sure there are other Buddhists might defend Mizuguchi, certainly as a koan, if it were, you know, as it is a story, it's not a real thing. But if this were a real thing, I don't think they'll defend burning down the monastery <laughs> to get back at, or, you know, maybe not the the superior. To kind of think about that slightly, at, at one point, Mizuguchi accuses Kashiwagi uh, himself of being a nihilist. He says, you're an, a nihilist. And he then later accuses... Um, I believe it's the the, um, the prostitute that he sleeps with also of being a sort of nihilist. And he sort of rejects that. And the very end of the book, it's this kind of a f- darkly funny ending. Like he's just burned down the temple. He's like, it's the feeling you get after you've done a good job. Like you want a cigarette after a good day's work. And then he says, like the last line in my translation is, I wanted to live. Which again, is, that's not a particularly nihilistic feeling to the ending of the book and he accuses others of nihilism but you're right carl that it doesn't seem entirely clear that he himself is free of that sense of destruction or something so it's a a fascinating kind of tension in running through the book in that way i like what you're saying carl about it being itself a sort of koan um, that has uninterpretability about it deliberately so one of the first things you always almost like a cliche that you read um, when you pick up a a book about Japanese art is the use. Uh, it's about the use of negative space. So powerful, right? And and in this book, uh, that's brought up in obliquely a couple of ways. One of which is when he goes to the Golden Temple to burn it down. Mizoguchi wonders whether the temple itself contains the beauty that overwhelms him, or if it's the darkness and the negative space that surrounds it. And a way I've been thinking about that is I've been reflecting on reading this book, and what I find interesting about it is that there are these negative moments of destruction and then these relationships that are sort of defined by their shared negativities in some ways at least with kashawagi right and with his mother or with the superior all of these negative associations and relationships are contributing to mizuguchi's way of viewing zen buddhism as carl pointed out in this somewhat more nihilistic sense Uh, and then meanwhile this insanely beautiful temple is bearing down on him going kind of away from the book for a second, part of what interests me about that is that when you're talking about Mishima, it's almost like impossible to think about any of his books without thinking about him as a person because his life was so uh, ended, maybe so interestingly, by you know ritual suicide after attempting to uh, reinstate like a sort of samurai feudal way of, militaristic way of being in Japan. Uh, that that like sense of one thing overpowering everything else runs through his like the reading of his books that's captured in the film that carl mentioned as well uh these sort of big moments overshadowing everything else in a person's life and affecting the way you read them but i think that that's that works well with his books because those books themselves contain that sort of feeling that there's this destruction at the end and it's going to be the thing that carries through the rest of the book there's this sense of overwhelming beauty and it's going to like all of these i don't know these things like bear heavily on the character and that balance attempting to balance that with everything else in his life uh, seems to be like one of the struggles of the book i think that's a really interesting way to think about the narrative of this book friedrich because one of the things that came into my mind as soon as i started reading this was dostoevsky's underground man um, which there's a kind of a funny oblique reference to dostoevsky because at one point mizuguchi brings this book to the prostitute and it's called crime and punishment but it turns out it's actually just like a very dry legal text it's not actually dostoevsky's novel which is pretty funny but 
I couldn't help but see some of these elements of, of the underground man in the figure of Mizuguchi. He's this outcast. He has trouble speaking to people. He internalizes these obsessions with other people and sort of showing them his worth. The only sort of relationship he has with a woman is with a prostitute, and it's kind of a you know a weird relationship. So, so there's all these little bits and pieces floating in from the underground man. But it strikes me, you know, in, in, in Notes from Underground, the big problem that the narrator has is he can't accomplish anything. He can't do anything. And Mizuguchi gets around that because he burns a freaking temple down. And so it's almost like that moment at the end kind of forces us to go back and reevaluate all the rest of the book in which I think you're sort of alluding to, like, there's not a ton that happens. It's more like these little moments than it is these big grand narratives. I mean, it, again, like books that we tend to like, we talked about this last week with Canticle for Leibowitz and previously with um, Trouble on Triton. There's all these big world historical events going on around him. The Second World War, he makes a passing reference to the Korean War starting, but he's not involved in any of that. He's like the sweet spot age to, to, to avoid those wars. So we miss all of this these big events happening I don't think there's even any direct reference to the atomic bombs dropping. Just fire bombings. Yeah. 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 So, so like there's all these, you know, these parts that we would expect in, in a novel set in Japan in World War II, and we don't get them. And so we get these smaller moments instead. But then, of course, you're right that we build up. Finally, we reach this climactic event that then has to kind of color how we see the rest of what's going on. I mean, all of that is is very much still in the book in certain ways, I think. But I do I do like um, what you're saying, Soren, that is kind of the small moments of this individual. And for Mishima, that would have been pretty important. Like, what is the change in Japanese culture with respect to the average person that has happened since World War II? And it's extremely negative in his view. So he wants to give us some sense of what kind of culpability there might be on an individual level, even. And for him, it's Mizuguchi's moment where there's the American soldier who comes to the temple with um, the woman he's with. And then I forget exactly what happens before this event, but then the American is like demanding that he like stomp on her stomach repeatedly. And he does it and later kind of justifies to himself that, you know, if he didn't do it, he would have got beaten or killed or something. And then he learns later that that probably caused like a miscarriage or something. I think there's a lot of kind of symbolic resonance there with post-war Japan or something that Mishima is trying to give us. And he also thinks about moments like that in terms of evil, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of a theme that comes up over and over. And he's somewhat appalled and then like intrigued by the fact that like one moment of genuine evil could exist. So even if he doesn't ever feel culpable about it or never asked anyone for forgiveness or something that becomes more and more intriguing and interesting to him because then it means evil real evil can exist in the world and so i think some of those things have like larger resonances but he gives us the small moment to think about it which i think is really great that's really striking to me carl the discussion of how mishima is using these moments of smallness to create these big reflections because one of the f- f- first passages that really caught my eye in the book is in this initial kind of encounter with the Golden Temple. Mizuguchi has these sort of rapturous monologues on beauty and what it might mean, and that's a theme in the book, and we can talk about that more later. But for, for now, I just want to note, he's kind of thrown out into this space where he doesn't, he can't process spatiality anymore when he's looking at the temple. And this is, this is what he says. There were times when I thought of the Golden Temple as being like a small, delicate piece of workmanship that I could put in my hands. There were times also when I thought of it as a huge, monstrous cathedral that soared up endlessly into the sky. Being a young boy, I could not think of beauty as being neither small nor large, but a thing of moderation. So when I saw small, dew-drenched summer flowers that seemed to emit a vague light, They seemed to me as beautiful as the Golden Temple. Again, when the gloomy, thunder-packed clouds stood boldly on the other side of the hills, with only the edges shining in gold, their magnificence reminded me of the Golden Temple. Finally, it came about that even when I saw a beautiful face, the simile would spring into my mind, lovely as the Golden Temple. There's this wonderful interplay. He he says, like, I haven't yet learned 
the jadedness of adults, which is like everything in moderation, right? Like the Aristotelian mean or something. And beauty for him consists in these weird contrasts between big and small. Either it's like this perfect little sculpted object, like those like those miniature books that you see sometimes. They're like a centimeter, right? And it's like whatever, Pilgrim's Progress. Or it's like these this giant booming mountain. And both of those things remind him of the golden temple and that that almost seems to be going on here in the narrative as well like there are these moments of smallness and these moments of bigness and each of them is drawing us back to the central ideas of the text itself so he's it's almost like he's worked in the philosophical reflections at the level of narrative event which i find very intriguing soren to your comment about this sort of disparity in size between some of the events or images of the book Something that strikes me about them as well is that there's a sort of poetic accumulation of repeated images. And that that for me, as someone reading this, makes it sort of difficult to talk about without getting out a pen and marking down a bunch of page numbers and trying to draw connections between them. Because there are these instances like Carl's talking about where the American soldier sort of cheerily invites him to stomp on his mistress's stomach. And there's sort of this weird joy about it when he does it. And there are these moments of like disgust that happen when he's supposed to be feeling pleasure, joy that happens when he should be feeling disdain or disgust. And then there are specific images like a woman's revealed breast that come back to him. For instance, when he goes to try to lose his virginity and the woman pulls out her breast, it, it becomes like this massive thing to him containing multitudes of darkness, but then it becomes something small and mundane. And then finally it's just a breast. Like it, it goes through all these phases mm. and that happens throughout and the images repeat and there's some sort of Freudian feel to a lot of it that a lot of it's about things stemming from his childhood vision that you mentioned of seeing his mother with someone else while his father's dying but there are also more abstractly as you mentioned Soren just repeated frustrations for him between what the thing is and what he feels and he roots that in his stuttering right um, and that's part of what makes this book so interesting to me is his way he's, he talks about his stutter at the beginning where he says it's something that sort of delays his emotional response to things and it makes those emotions free floating attaching to things that are sort of uh, disconnected to what they should be and existing almost on their own and also the way he relates his um, inner and outer self to one another that because of his stutter he sees like the interior world he inhabits as kind of disjointed and separated from the exterior world I don't know if either of you have anything um, on exteriorities and interiorities, but I found that interesting. That oscillation or like foreground backgrounding is a very like Zen Buddhist thing, right? And there are multiple moments in the book where he's talking about what that is and what that does. It is said that the essence of Zen is the absence of all particularities and that the real power to see consists in the knowledge that one's own heart possesses neither form nor feature. Yet the power to see, which is capable of properly envisaging the absence of feature, must be exceedingly keen in resisting the charm of formal appearances. How can a person who is able to see forms or features with selfless keenness so vividly see and apprehend formlessness and featurelessness? So it's that that Zen ability to kind of push everything to paradox, push it to that koan-like state. It helps to start with that, like, the minimal and the maximal, the the form and the content, right? And then say, like, I see this thing as, you know, a collection of atoms or whatever, and then I see it as, like, how my mind perceives it in the concepts of it or whatever, like a cat or something. And then, so just the, just the atoms, the cat, like, which one is it? And then how do we sort of get beyond either of those? And I think Mizuguchi is kind of an interesting character to follow along different paths with that kind of learning buddhist mindlessness he, he tries to learn it in a lot of different ways and with the beauty of the golden temple he first thinks it's like not very beautiful at all it doesn't really make any sense to him and then he's like the beauty will reveal itself to me eventually and then again we get i think greatly at the end like has it revealed itself in the kind of flames or you know after it's no more does it kind of exist for him as such a real part of his life that he's he can like see it and its beauty 
he ma- I mean, he makes the claim at some at one point as he's considering this action that basically only by destroying the temple that he can preserve it for himself at least. So yeah, that's a that's a fascinating point, Carl. He also has that debate with Kashiwagi, and the two of them often disagree about something. I mean, or Kashiwagi points out that they disagree about something by projecting onto Mizuguchi what he thinks Mizuguchi is thinking. In one of those disagreements, they're talking about knowledge and action, how knowledge can or can't change the world and what it does for the world. And Kashiwagi is talking about how they need to be collecting knowledge and preserving things. And then... Mizuguchi blurts out that only action can do anything, right? Only action. And they then associate that, Kashiwagi associates, associates that immediately with the nonsense kills the cat koan that gets repeated throughout the book and says, oh, now you're this person instead of the other person, right? You've changed positions. And then later when he's going to the temple to burn it down, he's thinking about his actions and he says, now there's, it is as if there is no, not the slightest connection between me and my action. Up to this point, it has been I. From here on, it is not I. How can I dare to stop being myself? That he's sort of, this is getting to what Carl was saying, right? That it, that, that action has become something like away from his ego and away from his self. And I think what's a rich tension in this book is how much we want to you know, credit him for dissociating from himself in an act that we would all probably judge as, as bad. And then as I said earlier in my overdetermined reading of this based on what happens in Mishima's own life, how that sense of like you've given yourself over to an action because you only think an action can change things can have uh, intended consequences that are nevertheless unsuccessful. I'm glad you brought us to that moment, Friedrich, because I found that discussion between the two of them about knowledge versus action to be one of the hinge points of the book. But I'm not sure I was really sure what to make of it and so i'm wondering if either of you have further thoughts about that you know this discussion that happens and kashiwagi says he's on the side of knowledge only knowledge is worth anything and he kind of goes back and reinterprets this cone again as he's done several times in the book and says basically the person who acted did something but the person who sought after knowledge was the the person who ultimately made sense of this paradoxical situation and then he said, he says you know, to Mizuguchi, you know, you're an you're a person of action. I'm a person of knowledge. I think knowledge is superior. But then, of course, this is Mizuguchi's book, and it ends in a piece of action and a piece of action that he feels quite satisfied in. It almost felt to me like your namesake Friedrich, a, a sort of Nietzschean account of like the end of philosophy is not just this sort of useless, sterile knowledge. But it is, in fact, some sort of action, and there's a power there. And, and, you know, I'm pulling back on that a little bit because I think it's very easy to read Mishima as sort of a Nietzschean figure in a lot of ways. But that's, that feels a little bit too easy to me, maybe. So, but, I, but I am curious in thinking about the relationship between knowledge and action in this book, which is maybe a, an especially fraught relationship for a lot of the books we read that are both interested in narrative or action, but also in philosophy or knowledge or getting beneath the surface of things. And so I guess I'd like some help understanding what the relationship between knowledge and action is that's suggested by the book, if you have any thoughts about that. I mean, it gets a little more complicated because it's it's read back into the nonsense kills a cat koan as metonymic of the two figures in some way. There's Father Nansen and there's Chosu and... They're going back and forth discussing knowledge and action, but they also bring in beauty, and what is born of knowledge and beauty is art, so that's clearly important for Mishima, and I'm sure that's close to action for him. Perfect art and perfect action should go together in some way for Mishima. So I can only complicate it, I can't really explain it, but it seems that beauty and art are also thrown in. And there's there's another place where he says... Um, Beauty is basically inaction. Beauty doesn't change anything and can't change anything. And that's great because it just sits back and watches the world in its, you know, empty changes, but it remains itself uh, like the temple. So beauty is inaction. I I like what you're saying, Carl, about about beauty being sort of this uh, witness to things. (laughs) When uh, they're having this discussion at the very end of it, Kashiwagi says as you said, something is born from this 
sleeping knowledge and that's art. And then Mizuguchi says, beauty, dot, dot, dot. And then just stops and starts stuttering and says, it was a limitless thought. Like this idea of beauty just totally stupefies him and is unable to say anything about it. Um, Whereas knowledge and action are things that they're attempting to describe. I do think, like Carl, that the right way to this is un- unfortunately maybe in some ways for us to problematize it. You know, when he's, when Kashiwagi is talking about knowledge, he's saying there's no such thing as individual knowledge, a particular knowledge belonging to one special person or group. Knowledge is the sea of humanity, the field of humanity, the general condition of human existence. There's this sort of sense of just like you are a cresting wave, right, in an ocean. Mizuguchi at one point is talking about how he realized the temple could be destroyed because it was something that people thought was indestructible. The counter to that is that people are highly fragile, but he says they can never be destroyed because they're part of this like sea of humanity cresting and rising, cresting and rising, right? And as as Carl said, I feel like I can only bring that out to problematize it and say that I don't have a specific <laughs> answer for you, Soren. Your only response should be to put sandals upon your head. That's right. <laughs> I should have thrown that question out to the sea of humanity. That's my mistake. <laughs> I mean, I think one thing I could say about it too is that there's that moment of action that I pointed to where he says, I no longer was, basically I was no longer doing this. The action took over and I became part of the action and, or, not, or separated from the action. Just the action was going on. For me, I kind of read that as a confusion between what's being said in this part where he says knowledge belongs to sort of everyone. Knowledge is part of the sea of humanity. And here he's taking his action and saying, I'm not an individual doing this action. The action is existing on its own, as if the action too could be something that was part of this sea of humanity. And obviously the consequences of any action are part of that. But we as readers probably don't want to say that the decision to do an action is separated from the individual. I think he's confusing those in some way. I mean, a simple way to parse it is like there's the Socratic knowledge is power. What changes things knowledge does. Whoever has the most knowledge at any one time will eventually win the game of history and progress and civilization. And then there's like the great man of history, you know, theory or whatever, like Carlyle, like whoever has the most power, whoever has the most force, their will is going to be what's made manifest throughout history the Roman Empire wasn't crushed by the smartest people kind of view of history. So those those are two ways to kind of combat the the knowledge versus action thing. But I think Misham is trying to say beauty is weirdly the catalyst for all this in some way, or the tinder for the what happens in history. Beauty vaguely defined as like created from desire or no. Because this book is a lot of desire, too, right? It's all about, like, his attempts to mitigate his own desire. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And that, that that's Kashiwagi's point when he retells the cone, right? He, because he slips in. He says, nobody else is going to tell you this. But this is, like, the true esoteric meaning of this is that the kitten that they killed was really beautiful. <laughs> like, that's right, what they right. were so interested in it is the beauty element of it. And so, yeah, no, I think that's interesting, Carl, that beauty begets this desire that then causes these other things to happen. And that does seem to be a sort of theme running through the book. But but the lines get very blurred between sort of aesthetic desire and erotic desire in so many ways. Like, he, he has several encounters with women in which he's trying to sleep with them and is unsuccessful at first. So, so impotence itself is sort of a theme in the book, right? In the literal sense, his, his father impotently watches as his wife is making love to another man as he's lying ill. But, but then Mizuguchi himself struggles with a sort of impotence as he's with these women. Part of the problem is like he's trying to encapsulate in these sexual encounters or these would-be sexual encounters, like the beauty of the temple. It's like he's, he's like, fantasizing about the temple as he's trying to get an erection or something like that. I mean, that's a little too far maybe, but like that element of the beauty of the temple is tied in with that. And then when he finally does sleep with a woman with this prostitute at the end, it happens because he he feels like he's freed himself from the allure of the temple somehow. And so he's finally able to have something approaching normal sexual functioning. But, but there's this strange tie kind of throughout of this erotic and this aesthetic desire that's bound up in 
somehow I think in unattainability. There's the woman who crops up several times in the book, Mizuguchi and Tsurakawa see her engaged in this very bizarre ritual with her lover um, where she like exposes her breast and like puts milk in breast milk in his tea and they have this like tea ceremony and then he meets her later after her lover's been killed in the war and she like tries to do the same thing to him and it's like no longer erotic at all it's just weird he doesn't like it and he runs away from it right and so there's a sense of like that distance of desire being an important element for Mizuguchi like the the unattainability of what it is he's after and when he finally does somehow attain it when he finally does sleep with the prostitute it's very prosaic there's nothing very particularly exciting about it to him so there's something about that like erotic desires itself has to be aestheticized in this book in order to have any impact maybe i don't know i mean kashawagi talks a little bit about his desires when he's teaching so he thinks mizuguchi about how to lose his virginity he says at some point he realizes he could use his club feet right to his advantage because women felt sorry for him but in the moment of consummation what actually is happening is that he felt like the power of the distance between his club feet and his desire or something like that right the power of the distance between and they were they were never to be brought together his club feet and whatever was happening and there's this super emphasis on distance and maintaining it while with mizuguchi he says something about how everything he experienced felt like sort of a shadow of something he had already in some way imagined, right? And whatever it was he had been imagining when he actually performed the act had lost some of the allure that had originally want, drove him to the act, except for maybe the burning of the temple at the end because he seems pretty satisfied by that. He's even smoking a cigarette. But there, yeah, I think you're right sort of to say that there's the sense of unattainability. And I wonder if this book is, I don't know, it, it's so wrapped up in, people, in, in Mizuguchi's and other people's psychosexual desires. So I don't want to say anything about Buddhism that's necessarily separated from, from those desires. But I would ask Carl, who can outright reject this if he wants, that there's this sort of sense for me as I read this and as we discuss it, that part of what, Mizuguchi, as someone who maybe is a misinterpreter of Zen Buddhism, would say is that just as we need to escape a cycle of suffering at some point, uh, that if you guys are talking about desire and beauty as drivers of a lot of this action knowledge stuff, that Mizuguchi would also say we need to escape beauty and desire and the allure of things. I don't know if that would be unorthodox or completely orthodox. Are you talking about the point where he says, like, now I'm just to destroy beautiful things and... Kashiwagi is like, oh, you've changed now in the parable. You know, are you talking about that moment? I mean, I'm just talking about like thematically the re- like what the book is getting at about the destruction of beauty entirely. If, if beauty is something that is itself, as you were saying, a witness away from action and yet motivates people's desires, is beauty something that is also to be escaped? I mean, yeah, like all concepts must be escaped right on the road to enlightenment. Even the other parable, like if you meet the buddha on the road to enlightenment kill him mm. um it's like a, a famous one right again not promoting like murder amongst all buddhists or anything but as like a koan as like a means of jogging your brain out of a certain path of thinking to go forward thinking oh once i meet so and so i'll really know what it's like to do this or once i see this thing i'll really know what beauty is or whatever that's kind of the, the wrong way to go about things. You have to kind of kill that ultimate concept in some way in order to reach enlightenment is kind of one way to interpret that. Is there a sense, though, that in which that entails going th- through it? Because I was really struck, you know, Mizuguchi is talking about how it's a pretty frequent practice with the priests to, like, in order to detach themselves from erotic desire to just go sleep with like as many prostitutes as they can. It's like the practice, uh, according to him, again, I'm not saying this is like, this is his read on the situation. That seems to be something in the book though, that like in order to free yourself from beauty, you almost have to like glut yourself on it. It's like you, you know, your kid's like, I want to smoke. And you give him a pack of cigarettes and like smoke this whole thing. Right. And they're like, Oh, I don't want to smoke anymore. Right. It's like that, that you have to like, you know, you have to, 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 to become super saturated with beauty and then that sort of loses that effect 
That's what, that's what, one of the implications of at least part of the book. Whether that's, and I'm not saying that's, again, I'm not saying that's representative of Buddhist thought, but I was just saying Mizuguchi's read on this in the book seems to be there might be something to this idea. So as Soren, actually that made me think of another part that while well, Carl sits here and, and ponders all of our Zen questions for him uh, as he sits upon the mountaintop and waits, I, had, I wanted to bring us to another point where um, maybe what's happening in my mind in this book is becoming more clear. He is visited by a Zen master, right, at their temple, Master Zenkai, I think is his name. And uh, he starts asking him about, like, how he behaves. Mizuguchi's like, well, like, are people going to know the real me? Am I going to seem strange to ordinary people? And Father Zenkai is sort of like, yeah, if you act differently, like people will start to see you differently. They don't, they don't care that much about you. And so whatever exterior thing you're projecting is what people are going to think of you. And ultimately, as Carl would tell us too, like the personality is something you should be trying to get away from anyway, like personality, ego, whatever, right? But I think what's interesting about Mizuguchi as a character is we've been talking about these sexual desires and his childhood and stuff that he's someone who's like highly individually defined um, in his own mind by his stutter and by his desires that he can't fulfill. And he tells this father after he gets that advice to sort of just you know, not worry about it. He says, well, please see into me, father. I am not the sort of person you imagine. Please see into my heart that he's really clinging to this idea of his true self more strongly toward the end of the book than as a Zen monk, you would hope, right? So those tensions, I think, are are interesting. I mean, all I can say on Soren's point is certainly there have been in the American Buddhist monasteries, there have been, uh, there's been foul play by monks <laughs> or, or people who've done that sort of thing, right? And they've been criticized for it, rightly. But, um, Someone like Alan Watts will talk about like the left hand path, which is kind of his way of saying like there's the way towards finding out the truth can be done through like increasing one's rightness mm. and inc- and increasing one's like scruples over one's actions. And then the left hand path would be like decreasing all of those scruples and like going into like lawlessness in order to kind of see from the other side what rightness looks like or could feel like. But I don't know how licit any of that is to legit Buddhism. But I, I did love, on the narrative level, Father Zenchi or Zenkai at the end because Mishima gives us like a good portrait of like a sort of, of all of these people in this in this monastery, there's not many like noble souls or anything. <laughs> and then at the end, we get somebody who is they have like a sense of clarity and purpose that's on a different plane than Mm -hmm. everybody else going through the world, seeing things differently. And you can tell that Mishima has like a serious respect for the people who take spirituality very seriously and live it seriously. Uh, But he, he doesn't think that it's, you know, common, but it's definitely still there. And so I really appreciated that in the book, especially right at the point where you think, all right, everyone we meet at this monastery, like they've got some big problem or, you know, they're catty or they're selfish or they're, they're kind of prone to all of the same faults as everybody else. He reminds me a little bit of Abbot Daniel from Narcissus and Goldman, right? Who's like the very simple figure, but he's the one who kind of cuts through. You have Narcissus and Goldman, the two paths of humanity or whatever. And it's like, no, Abbot Daniel is like this leading the simple life of piety and devotion and real living and this, the same thing happens in this book you have all these mizuguchi and everybody he sort of interacts with there's these grandiose ambitions for everything and then you have father zenkai who's just very simple and says like don't expect basically don't expect to to be great in any way right just to yeah. expect to be normal that's like a good thing right and there's that simplicity and it does feel like a, a deflationary moment in a really positive way in the book so i, I like that a lot yeah and that deflation is a nice like zen principle like lessening finding the kind of the simple mode of doing something like like zazen meditation is it literally means just sitting you're just supposed to sit and meditate you know there's no important sutra to read beforehand necessarily or any sort of mode or method that you need or like deep training that you need in order to do it you just have to kind of sit there and do it that's how my students approach class (laughs) 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 <laughs> I like also Father Zenkai 
is fascinating to me f- for another reason here that's kind of related to what you're talking about, Carl, which is he seems to be one of the more perceptive characters in the book. And I'm really fascinated by this thread running through the book of misperception of other people. Mizuguchi's constantly doing it, but so, so does Kashiwagi. As you kind of pointed out earlier, earlier in the episode, Friedrich, he's always like attributing these things to Mizuguchi that are not necessarily correct. Like, you must think this, right? You must think this. There's this constant sense of misattributing motives to other people. There's a wonderful scene that's a sort of a, bit, a little bit of foreshadowing to the end of the book where Mizuguchi's following this random student around and he's convinced he's looked into his eyes and he's seen this guy's an arsonist just like me and he follows him around he's like he's gonna burn something down and it's like oh he just lights up a cigarette right and he's like oh, dang it he was wrong about it Kashiwagi says at one point that he he can always tell the women who are gonna fall in love with him because he's club-footed um, and he, he seems to be maybe a little bit better at this but it's a book that's so much inside of the, the head of one character in particular, but then what that means is there's a constant series of misreadings of what might be going on in other characters' heads. He's always trying to figure out what the superior thinks about him. He's convinced the superior is like plotting his downfall in some way or other. So there's a lot of misperception that happens in the book, which I find pretty fascinating as a narrative device because we're always uncertain about what's going on. And obviously like unreliable narrators are pretty typical but usually that's related you know maybe to what's happening in the plot whereas here it's just it's hard to trust anything that's happening outside of the world of Mizuguchi's head because he, he's so bad at reading other people and he's kind of like learning as he goes along as well he keeps making these guesses that turn out to be incorrect about what's happening around him Soren what you're talking about reminds me of the Lacanian term mechanesance and there's a lot of overlap with um, Lacanianism and Buddhism. And the idea that ego formation requires alienation is very much one that overlaps with Buddhism. The sense that, you know, to build a self, to build an ego, you are by definition creating an external world and creating this arbitrary division through concepts that aren't pure or perfect or absolute in some way. And I love that you brought us to that moment where he follows the would-be arsonist and who he turns out to be just a cigarette smoker. It really pushes the ending to a different kind of koan for me uh, with the sense of, is Mizuguchi like that person in some way? Was that the person who he had to kill on the road to finding enlightenment? He wasn't the arsonist. He had to become one or something. I think there are a lot of really interesting connections there. And I, I like that you bring us to the fact that there's so many misrecognitions in the book too because it also opens up the door for like could this ending just have been a huge misrecognition on the part of Mizuguchi you know uh, with his sort of psychosexual past and some form of aberrant projection onto the temple leading to its needing to be burned down I like how what you said opens up both those readings Soren what you were saying about this also reminds me of a little bit and maybe it throws us back into the season one world I mean, it throws us into the season one world of Dostoevsky in a lot of ways, because this is a book that, as you've said, has a lot of Dostoevsky and echoes. But I think it also throws us back into that season one discussion we had about Iris Murdoch and the idea that with Murdoch, you're in a world that confuses you and you're not in a world of rational decisions. You're not in a world of easily defined characteristics for each character that lead to their decisions. And I think by only having Mitsuguchi's mind and by only being with Mitsuguchi and seeing all these misrecognitions and misapprehensions and ultimately his own indecisions and maybe divorce of self from action, we're fully inhabiting in some way that Murdoch fiction of the person who does not understand their reality. And we as readers are then sort of tasked with trying to perceive through that. Um, and yet it's obviously coming from uh, a much different tradition than Murdoch's philosophy. But I think that uh, it can maybe be an, a surprising model for the way she wants us to think about character. Samurai sword. Exactly. <laughs> so here's, here's a passage that I really liked. I thought brought us to the heart of uh, Mizuguchi in some interesting ways. For I should pronounce a name other than his, another name, but who is this other teacher who has instructed me in the true way of enlightenment? I am stuck for his name. It is blocked by my stuttering and I and will not issue from my mouth. I stutter, and as I stutter, the other name begins to come out. 
beauty, I start to say, and nihility. Then all who are present burst out laughing, and I stand there awkwardly rooted to the spot amidst their laughter. So I like that again for the laughter idea that we keep coming back to. And also this idea from Mishima and his kind of aberrant Buddhism that like nihility with beauty, but not quite nihilism. That's kind of what he stands for in some interesting way. Um, this is the teacher on the on the road to enlightenment that can't fully be articulated even in this book because it's a stutter, but I think in kind of a Buddhist way because it's beyond articulation in some sense. The place where beauty meets nihility. But then it's entirely laughable to the people who are listening. I thought that was kind of a poignant moment in the book, one to maybe think about with this season's other books where beauty meets nihility utterly laughable to those listening i think that that sums us up pretty well and that's a good place to wrap up for this week we will be back on the road to something resembling enlightenment uh next time we're heading into cycle two of our season we've covered monks pretty thoroughly now at this point now we're moving into cycle two about mystery and friedrich has chosen to start us with what Brent Musburger might call the granddaddy, the first and most famous of them all. A Sherlock Holmes mystery by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, The Sign of the Four. So we're very excited to start off on a high note with that, and we will do that next time. Until then, we're going to let Cat Keyboard play us out. These diehard fans drop whatever they were doing to be in this last tool time with us. Let's have a warm tool time welcome for America's favorite all tool band, the KB Boys! <laughs> you guys are here to play music, right? Yes, sir, Timmy! <laughs> Pete! That would be me! <laughs> yeah.